One of the big questions that I often hear today is, where is God? Usually you'll hear that phrase during the time of perhaps a national crisis or some great calamity, oftentimes um, spoken by those who are antagonistic to the idea of a God. So when something bad happens, they will cry out, well, where's your God in this? Where's God when that happened? Where was God when this calamity or this tragedy occurred? Where was God? Perhaps it is spoken by those who hold fast to Christ, but sometimes wonder when a tragedy strikes or when they're diagnosed with um, a terminal illness or perhaps when they lose their job. Where's God? Where is God when, when I was... Why wasn't God there If God had been there, I wouldn't have lost my job. If God had been there, my child would not have lost their fight with that disease. If God was there, where is God? And so, this idea of where is God, especially during the time of national crisis, is so relevant to our study today as we begin taking a look at the book of Daniel. In order for us to understand the book of Daniel well, we I need to give us some I need to set it in its proper context. I need to present the big picture of the book of Daniel for for, for us to understand the smaller details of the book of Daniel, it is going to require that we understand the big picture. I think Daniel uh, is easily misunderstood. Oftentimes, we, I, I think we have come up with some really fantastic and maybe even more of a fantasy, if you will, of some of the book of Daniel because we have not considered the big picture. Or we have reduced the book of Daniel to quaint Sunday school stories fit only for children. You know, the three kids in the fire and Daniel and the Daniel and the lion's den. And those things are wonderful little Sunday school stories for our kids. But I think when we see the big picture of the book of Daniel, we will be less inclined to run off with fantastic ideas of some of the visions that Daniel has. And we will also guard against reducing these magnificent illustrations of the glory and the power of God to mere Sunday school lessons for children. And so, with that, I would like to take a look at some of the events that led up to the book of Daniel. And for that, we're going to be all over the, uh, the Bible today. Well, mostly the Old Testament today. So you might want to turn in your Bible right now to the book of Second Chronicles, chapter 36. And you're wondering, I thought we were in the book of Daniel. Why in the world are we going to Second Chronicles 36? Or perhaps you might even kind of make reference over to Second Kings, chapter 24. But for our purposes, Second Chronicles 36, if you're there, I want to read... Some of the things that are going on so that we understand the book of Daniel. And so in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, we read in verse 5. 
Second Chronicles 36.5, we read, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against him and bound him with bronze chains to take him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also brought some of the articles of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his temple in Babylon. Now, the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and the abominations which he did and, and what was found against him, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and of Judah. And Jehoiachin, his son, became king in his place. And so this historical background, this actually took place, this event that we just read happened in 605 B.C. See, in, in 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar became the king of Babylon. Actually, not 605, a little earlier than 605 B.C. He, uh, Nebuchadnezzar replaced his father and became the king of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar desired to revitalize the, the Babylonian Empire, and he was an expansionist. And so he wanted to expand the Babylonian Empire as, over all of the ancient Near East. And so he went over to Egypt and conquered Egypt. And on his way back to Babylon, he stopped by Jerusalem and he besieged Jerusalem. And he took Jerusalem um, and he defeated Jehoiakim. And so in 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem, besieged it, took captives and brought those captives back to, to Babylon. This is significant. This is the first deportation that we're going to see. And in this first deportation, a young man by the name of Daniel was taken from Jerusalem and brought into Babylon. And in fact, if you go over to Daniel chapter 1, you'll read this, chapter 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. This is 605 B.C. This is when Daniel came to Babylon. This is 10 years before Ezekiel was taken captive and brought to Babylon. It was 19 years before the fall of Jerusalem. This isn't the only deportation, nor is it the only attack on, ba on Jerusalem. I'm going to go and, and look in Second. 2 Kings chapter 24. And we're going to see the second deportation. See, here's what happens. Nebuchadnezzar goes and he sets up. He goes into Jerusalem, besieges it, puts a king on the, on the throne, and the king is supposed to pay taxes and tribute to, to Babylon. And then what will often happen is that king will say, I'm going to stop paying my taxes. This will be indicated in the Bible by saying, and so-and-so rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. When it says they rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, it says we stopped paying taxes. So what's the king to do? Comes back. And this is what we see happen in 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 8. 
Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of El Nathan of Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, went up to Jerusalem, and the city came under siege. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother, and his servants, and the captains of his officials. So the king of Babylon took him captive in the eighth year of his reign. He carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut into pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, just as the Lord had said. Then he led away into exile all Jerusalem and all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest of the land. This happened in about 598 to 597 BC. This is the second deportation. And then finally, in 586, 586 BC is one of those years that lives in infamy. If you are uh, an Israelite, this would be the day, the year that you remember. It is the year that Israel ceased to be an autonomous nation. After 586 B.C., for about 2,500 years after this, Israel was no longer an autonomous, independent nation. Jerusalem fell. Israel as a people and as a nation continued to exist, but always under foreign rule. And then in 70 A.D., the nation of Israel just ceased to exist. And this is what happened. I'll be reading from Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 11. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke for the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear allegiance by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart, turning to the Lord. Hardened his heart against turning to the Lord. God of Israel. Furthermore, all the officials of the priests of the people were very unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they defiled the house of the Lord, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin or old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand. All the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his officers, he brought them all to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. Those who had escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the king of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths all the days of its desolation. Its Sabbath, and it kept Sabbath until the seventy years were complete. And so, from 605 BC to 586 BC, there were three 
sieges on Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and in 586 BC, Jerusalem fell. Its walls were torn down. It ceased to exist as an autonomous nation. And the people were carried away to Babylon. The only ones left in Jerusalem were the poor and the infirm and those who served no purpose to the king of Babylon. This is the background. This we need to understand as we enter into the book of Daniel. Now, the book of Daniel has been structured in a variety of different ways, but I think the simplest and perhaps maybe, well, the most basic and simplest way to understand or to structure the book of Daniel is to understand that the first six chapters are historical. They are stories. They are mostly chronological narratives. In other words, the events of chapter two follow the events of chapter one and so forth and so on. And they are really where you and I, a lot of the really popular stories that we know, that's where we get the, the three kids in the fire. That's where we get Daniel and the lion's den. That's where we hear of Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the great statue. All of these occur in Daniel chapter one through six. The second part of the book of Daniel is chapter 7 through 12. And it is not necess- it's not a historical narrative. Rather, it is more visions. And so chapter 7 through 12 are visions that Daniel sees. And they represent the future of what's going to happen. And here we begin to see the kingdoms of the world uh, uh, in sharp relief. And Daniel is given a vision of what's going to happen in the future. And so the book of Daniel, chapters 1 through 6, are narrative, mostly historical, and then chapters 7 through 12, mostly futuristic, speaking of what's going to happen in the days to come. You see, this was a perplexing time. In chapter 1, verse 1, Babylon destroys Jerusalem and ultimately takes the people captive. Now, here's the thing. The people of Jerusalem thought God was on their side. And if God's on their, our side, who can defeat us? Who can beat us if we have Yahweh, our God, on our side? And we have the Ark of the Covenant sitting in the Holy of Holies. Who can defeat us? God would never let his temple be destroyed. God would never allow his city to be burned. That would never happen. And if you want great proof, the king of Assyria many years earlier had come to Jerusalem to destroy it. And God miraculously saved the people of Jerusalem. And the king of Assyria went off and did his other thing. And the Assyrian Empire came to nothing. And so the people were saying, look, here's proof. God will never destroy his temple. God will never allow the temple to be destroyed. He will never allow his city to be be destroyed. Look at the Assyrians. They tried and look what happened to them. And now, all of a sudden, Nebuchadnezzar comes along and does exactly what they believed God would never allow. Where is God in all of this? You see, chapter 1, verse 2 is not just simply a historical statement. It's a theological statement. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came in and took the art, destroyed the city, took the articles of gold and silver out of God's temple and brought them to his own pagan temple. This was a theological statement. In other words, let me just 
put it rather simply. Our God's greater than your God. The God of Babylon is more powerful than the God of Israel. You want proof? We just beat you up and we just took all of the articles of your temple and we brought them and placed them into the temple of our pagan gods. What do you think about that? And the people are saying, where is God? I thought God would defend himself. I thought God would defend his people. Where is he? Of course, we, we read in Second Chronicles that God did protect his people. He sent them prophets. And they spoke to him and they continually rebuilt. And, and God just didn't send any prophets. God sent the big guns. He sent Jeremiah. That's a big boy. He sent Ezekiel. These were the guys who were speaking to Jerusalem. This is what Habakkuk is saying in the first chapter. He's saying, God, don't you see all of the destruction? Don't you see the wickedness of your people? Aren't you going to do something? And God responds, yeah, I'm going to do something. I'm going to bring in the Chaldeans. I'm going to bring in Nebuchadnezzar. And he's going to take you captive. And Habakkuk says, wait a second. You can't do that. You've got to do something, but don't do that. God says, oh, you just stand by and watch. That's exactly what I'm going to do. So God has been bringing in his prophets and they continue to rebel. And where is God? Is, has our God abandoned us? Is our God no longer powerful? Has God forgotten his covenant? Actually, God remembered his covenant and he's fulfilling his covenant by allowing them to go, to go into exile. But anyways, the question is, where is God? Because it looks like God has failed. It looks like perhaps maybe the Babylonian gods are much more powerful, are much stronger. And so as we continue and consider the book of Daniel, that's our background. So here's my structure. Here's the flow that I hope to accomplish today. I want to talk about three things. I want to talk a little bit about the sovereignty of God. I would like to talk a lot about the sovereignty of God, but all the way through the book of Daniel, we'll get to talk about that. So I'll just introduce that subject today, one of the best subjects in the Bible. The second subject we want to deal with is the permitted sovereignty of man, that man has some authority and some rule on the earth. And then the third uh, issue that I want to deal with today is the sad steadfastness of Daniel, because in this we... Um, We'll see how we are, can live our lives in these difficult days. So the big question is, who's in charge? So we look at the sovereignty of God. Again, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave to Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. And so here it appears that the gods of Babylon have defeated Yahweh, the God of Israel. But I want us to understand the sovereignty of God and who's in charge. I want you to notice a very key phrase here. Verse 2, the Lord gave. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And this is a key phrase, and we're going to see it all, we're going to see it frequently in, in, 
in the book of Daniel, and I put a few references in your notes in chapter 1, 9, uh, 117, 223, 237, 238, 244. We, all, we see this. The Lord gave. The Lord allowed. The Lord um, provided. The Lord did all of this. And so right at the very beginning, we might ask the question, it looks like God is no longer in charge. But if we read carefully, we will realize that when Daniel picked up pen to write this letter or write this account... Daniel, at the very beginning, is making sure that everybody understands that Yahweh is God and he is king. Nebuchadnezzar is not king. Nebuchadnezzar's gods are not king. The reason all of this happened is because God gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Look at chapter 2, verse 20 and 23. And we're just going to kind of be going back and forth through the book of Daniel today because I want us to get a good overview of the book before we begin looking in detail at it. Chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. You'll remember that King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and he asked um, his magicians and his conjurers and, and his sorcerers. And he said, tell me the dream and its interpretation. And they said, nobody can do that. Tell us your dream and we'll, we'll tell you what it means. And he said, no, you, if you're really truthful, you'll tell me what the dream is and its interpretation because I think you're just trying to pull one over on me. And if you can't do it, I'm going to kill you. And Daniel was one of those guys. He was on the list to be slaughtered. So Daniel goes and prays. And God reveals to Daniel vision as well as the interpretation. And this is Daniel's response when God reveals the vision to him. Verse 20, Daniel said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. For wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you. You have made known to us the king's matters. And so, in the vision that Nebuchadnezzar has, it is a vision of kings rising and falling and kingdoms being established and deposed. And set in all of that, Daniel gives praise to the God who is unchanging. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go. Empires rise and fall. But God is the God who is to be blessed. God is the one to whom wisdom and power belong. God is the one who changes times. God is the one who removes kings. God is the one who establishes kings. God's the one who gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound things, not the kings of the vision that Daniel saw. Those kings are nothing. Look at chapter 2, verse 37. Daniel says this. He is interpreting the dream to King Nebuchadnezzar. And he says this. 
You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength and the glory. I love that. You, O Nebuchadnezzar, you're king of kings. I saw the vision. I saw the dream. I know the dream that you had. And in this dream, the the statue you saw, you are the top dog. You are the king of kings and he's being truthful there. You are the king of all kings. But it is God who has given you such a position. That is a derived position. It is not one that comes from yourself. It is not one that is due to your greatness or anything like that. You, O Nebuchadnezzar, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given this kingdom and power and strength. Whatever you have, it is derived from something else. It is derived from God, the God of heaven. You are the king of kings. And then look at verse 46. I love this. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present him an offering and a fragrant incense. And so Daniel does what the the gods of the Chaldeans could not do. The gods of the Chaldeans were weak and impotent. They could not reveal the unknown. In fact, it says, and we'll talk about this when we get to chapter 2, there is no God who reveals these secrets to men except the God of Daniel does what the God of the Chaldeans could not do. And he reveals secrets that are unknown to anybody else. And to that, King Nebuchadnezzar falls down before this slave and gives homage to him and says, certainly your God is God. I love this picture. Here is Nebuchadnezzar, probably the most powerful man in the ancient Near East, probably one of the most glorious kings who has, and probably one of the most powerful and wise and significant individuals who has ever lived. He, he built this huge empire. The archaeological studies, just the, the archaeological site is I believe it is the largest archaeological site in the ancient Near East, the ruins of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was very significant. He's the one who built the hanging gardens of Babylon, and he, he was a massive expansionist. This man bows before a Hebrew slave and says, Your God is the God of gods. Your God is the one who rules. And then chapter 3, verse 29, we read this. This occurs after Daniel's friends were thrown into the fiery furnace and God protects them. And then in chapter 29, chapter 3, of verse 29, Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks Anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no God who is able to deliver in this way. My gods can't do that. There's only one God who can do what I just saw. And that is the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These are not the kings of Babylon. These are not the gods of Babylon. The gods of Babylon could do nothing, but the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego can save in a way that is impossible with anybody else. Do you see how God is being revealed in the book of Daniel? 
He is being exalted. He is being glorified. He is being seen as he truly is. Who's in charge? Chapter 4, verse 3. And I'm just going to go through these because they're beautiful. Chapter 4, verse 3. How great are his... Speaking of the Most High God... How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. And here Nebuchadnezzar is acknowledging that the the God of Daniel is the most high God. His signs are mighty and his wonders are amazing. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Then over in chapter 4, verse 17, we read this. This was another vision that Nebuchadnezzar had. And this is the interpretation. This sentence is by decree of the angelic watchers. And a decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Who raises up kings? God raises up kings and he bestows authority and power on whomever he wishes. Verse 32. And you, Daniel has been speaking to Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel has been saying, here's the deal, Neb. Neb. Can I call you Neb? (laughs) You're going to be driven away from mankind and you are going to be reduced to 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 live like a beast of the field. And you're going to do that for a period of time until you acknowledge God Most High. And so in that, verse 17, I'm sorry, verse 32, and you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle. Seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and he bestows upon it whomever he wishes. And then over in 34, verses 34 and 35. But at the end of this period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honor him who lives forever and ever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? So Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, living like an animal for seven years, comes to his senses, and this is what he recognizes. God is most high. And God does what God decides to do. And as powerful as I am as a king, I am nothing. God is king over all. Just, if we move over to chapter 5, verse 18, we have a new king. Nebuchadnezzar dies, and now we have another king. 
His name is Belshazzar, and he mocks God, and he brings the, the, uh, the uh, instruments of worship into his own pagan ceremony. And he mocks God in chapter 5, 18. And you read Daniel talking to the king. O king, the Most High God has granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. The Most High God, he granted your father whatever rule he had. By the way, whatever rule you have has been granted to you by God Most High. And then we see over in 29 and 30, Then Belshazzar gave orders, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean the Chaldean king was slain, so Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. And so he raised Belshazzar up, and he brought Belshazzar down, and he put a new king in his place. This is all by the hand of God. Chapter 6, verse 25 through 27. We have a new king. We now have we now have three kings, don't we? We've got Nebuchadnezzar, we've got Belshazzar, and now we got Darius ruling. Kings come and go, but God remains on the throne. Chapter six, verses twenty-five through twenty-seven. A new king, Darius. Then Darius the king wrote to all peoples and nations and men of every language who are living in all the land, may your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and enduring forever, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever and ever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, and who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions." So we have God revealing himself to Nebuchadnezzar. We have God revealing himself to Belshazzar. We have God revealing himself to Darius. And they all come to the conclusion that God is God. And then in verse 28, So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. That's a significant verse. Because Cyrus the Persian, that's a whole new empire. Daniel survives the Babylonian Empire and he lives all the way until the Persian Empire. He sees empires come and go. He sees kings come and go. He lived under the authority, I believe, of five Judean kings, under the realm of five Babylonian kings, and at least under the realm of one Persian king. Kings come and go. Empires rise and fall, but God and his servants just keep on going. Chapter 7, verses 7 through 14. Rather lengthy quote, but we should take note of it. I'll just I'll look at verse, begin in verse 9. I kept looking until the thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and his hair, and the hair of his head was pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending to him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were open. Then I kept looking, because the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking, I kept looking until the 
the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And so Daniel sees this vision and he sees this vision of of kingdoms and empires coming and going. And he says, I see them coming and going and I see them mocking the God of heaven until I saw the ancient of days and he came and an everlasting kingdom was given to him and everybody worshipped him. This is the God of heaven. This little horn that was destroyed and gives way to an everlasting kingdom. And then over in chapter 11, verses 36 through 39, <clears throat> we see this a picture of a final sovereign, a final king of kings, a final ruler. But even he will bow before God Almighty. Then the king will do as he pleases and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods and he will prosper until the indignation is finished for that which is decreed will be done. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women nor will he show regard for any other god for he will magnify himself above them all but instead he will honor a god of fortresses a god whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones Stones and treasures. He will take action against the strongest of the fortresses with the help of a foreign god. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the many and will par- parcel out the land for a price. And then in verse 45, it says this. And he will pitch the tent of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. Here is this final sovereign who claims to be ruler of all things and even he will come to his end. I guess what I'm trying to say in summary is this, that Daniel details for us and assures us and gives us certainty that God is God over kings, that God is God over nations and God is God over history. He is God over human decrees. He is God over human empires and he is God whether you recognize him or not. You may be here today and say, well, I don't believe that. Well, that's fine. It doesn't change God one bit. He's still God over everything. He's God over everything. And your belief in that doesn't change him one bit. So the question then is being that he is God over history, God over decrees, God over empires, God over kings, God over laws and rules and rulers. What are you going to do about it? Will you bow the knee before the God of gods or will you continue to stiffen your neck and say, no, I think I would rather be the Lord of my life. You are not the Lord of your life any more than Nebuchadnezzar was the Lord of his life. Any more than Darius was the Lord of his life. Any more than Belshazzar was the Lord of his life. Any more than Cyrus was the Lord of his life. God rules over all. And so the simple question now is, what are we going to do about that? Will we bow before him or will we continue to insist that, no, no, I think I will go my own way. You and I will rise and fall. You and I will come to our end and God will still be God.
that's the part of the book. Of, I think that's one of the significant aspects of the book of Daniel. If we don't understand that, we will minimize stories like the lion's den and the fiery furnace. And we will end up with fantastic tales of futuristic things. But we need to understand that God is God. Well, God has also given sovereignty, though limited sovereignty, to humankind. Here's the thing, until the end, until God redeems everything and restores his, his kingdom, until that end, sovereignty operates through human rulers. And Daniel is set in, time of, in the time of one of the greatest empires in human history. But here's the thing we've seen, that great kings come and go. As I said earlier, Daniel witnesses five Babylonian kings, at least one Persian ruler, and so we learn that even the most powerful come to an end. But these human rulers do wield considerable power. Chapter 2, we see these powerful kings, but even then we see that they are transient. In chapter 3, verse 15, I love this verse. Chapter 3, verse 15 Nebuchadnezzar is um, threatening everybody with, if you don't worship me, I'm going to throw you into a fiery hot oven. And I love this, this verse, verse 15. Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music to fall down and worship the image that I made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hand? Neb's answer is nobody. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have a different idea. What God is there who can deliver you out of my hand? And they reply, yeah, the God of heaven. And even if he doesn't, it doesn't change one thing. He's still the God of heaven. If he delivers us or doesn't, doesn't change the fact that he is God. Who can deliver you out of... And, and so Nebuchadnezzar is speaking rather boldly and pompously. What God is there who can overrule my edict? Well, he's about to find out. See, Nebuchadnezzar believes that he is ultimate. But the book of Daniel tells us that he has a rented sovereignty. It is leased to him. He is a steward of his sovereignty. Chapter 6, Darius the king signs a decree. It's so interesting. I love this. He signs a decree that not even he can rescind. So he's the king and he says, basically, you know what? Nobody can pray except to these pagan gods. And Daniel says, I'm not going to pray to a pagan god. And Darius has signed a decree. Darius is the, the king of kings. Uh, he is the big cheese in all the land. And he can't even rescind what he did. Even he's limited. So who can, who can save Daniel? Because not even Darius can rescind the decree that he signed. But see, Daniel serves a God who is not limited by, by decrees written by men. Darius discovers that his sovereignty is leased to him. It is given to him by God. And while he signs a decree that he cannot rescind, there is a God in heaven who can deliver Daniel. Darius, you're the most powerful man in the world and you can't even fix this. But there's a God in heaven 
who has given you power. It's limited power, but he can do what you cannot do. And then chapter 7 is very interesting, especially when we see it in light of chapter 4. In chapter 4, we see human superpowers depicted as beasts. We even see the king become like a beast. And we see all the kingdoms are viewed as beasts. But then I saw the ancient of days, one like a human being. And we see this, can't miss this depiction. All the kingdoms of the world, even Nebuchadnezzar, is seen as a beast of the field. But the Most High is seen as a son of man. I would venture to say the idea here is that when we live under the rule of God, that is only then do we become truly human. So let me summarize this section. All authority is derived. It is not ultimate and it will be judged. And so my question then is over whom do you exercise authority? Are you a parent? Do you exercise authority over your children? Are you an employer or an employee? Do you have people under your charge in your stewardship how do you, i want you to understand that that stewardship has been given to you from above if you are a parent you are a parent by decree of god and god has entrusted you with the stewardship of your authority over your children if you are an employer and you have people working underneath you do not think too highly of yourself that somehow my wisdom and my might and my intellect and my training and my skills and all of these things has exalted me to this position to have this great authority. That authority is a derived authority. It comes directly from the King of Kings and you are responsible to steward that authority with, in a way that will honor and glorify the God who gave it to you. Do you seek advancement? Do you want to... to Uh, succeed? Do you want promotion? Do not be fooled by your own achievements. You will be judged by how you use it. I take that also very seriously. As the pastor of this church, this is a derived authority. I did not get this because I am some sort of superior, great, skilled, whatever. It did not come because of that. It came because there is a God in heaven who I guess in his wisdom, saw fit to install me as a pastor of the church of this church for this time. I think he probably could have done better, but nevertheless, this is what he did. And so my job is to steward that well. I will be responsible. You, you will be judged by how you use the authority that God has given you. I'd like to speak about one last thing, and that is the steadfastness of Dan. And oh my goodness, we're, we're rambling on here, but here we go. I think the book of Daniel may be one of the most significant and relevant books of our day because Daniel is living in exile, and I would suggest to you that um, as our culture gets more and more pagan and lost, the church, I think, parallels the book of Daniel more and more, that we are living in exile. And Daniel exemplifies faithfulness to Yahweh in the pagan culture. First of all, for Daniel, we, we want to set forth that it's very dangerous to be near the king because when a new king comes, everybody who is near the king dies. Very dangerous to be near the king. Daniel was near the king. In chapter, chapter 1, Daniel and his friends are tempted to compromise. Sometimes faithfulness to God becomes a matter of risking opportunity and risking life. 
And I could see somebody saying to Daniel, really, Daniel, you're going to make a big stink about food. Really? Is that really the hill you want to die on? Listen, Daniel, just eat the food. It's good. I know it's been sacrificed to pagan gods, but you don't believe in those pagan gods anyways. Daniel, just go along to get along. This is not the time to be rocking the boat. You're brand new here. You just got here. You're just a Hebrew slave. They can get another one just like you. Who are you, Daniel? Daniel, wise up. Give in. Compromise. It's not going to hurt anything. You can make it up later. Daniel, don't be a fool. Think of the opportunities you're going to have. Think of the influence you're going to have. If you just give in here, a little later on, you're going to get close to the king. Man, imagine the influence you could have when you get close to the king. Daniel, what are you doing? Give in. In Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 6, we see Daniel very blunt with the king. Nebuchadnezzar, you're the guy who's going to go mad. Nebuchadnezzar and Darius, you're going to come to an end. Daniel, tone it down just a little bit. Why do you need to be so blunt? Why do you need to be so truthful? Can't you be a little more tactful? You're a diplomat after all. So first we see Daniel being tempted. We see Daniel being faithful to God in in exile. Now we see Daniel being truthful, not toning down the truth one bit. He's going to speak the truth, even if it's going to get him into trouble. I'm going to speak the truth. And then in chapters 3 and 6, Sometimes to be faithful to God means we have to defy human sovereigns and trust in God. We see this when Daniel was refused to pray to these pagan gods. And I could see somebody coming along, Daniel, really? You can just pray in your heart. You don't believe in those pagan gods anyways. So just go along and and pray to them. You don't believe in them. You know they're powerless. And you can always just pray in your heart. You can pray quietly in your heart. And Daniel would not. Sometimes one must defy human sovereigns in order to be obedient to God. Once again, somebody might say, think of the influence you received. This came way late. Daniel had been in in exile for many, many years, decades by this time. In fact, he's probably an old man at this time. Daniel, you've come all this way. Think of the influence you have. Think of the, uh, the cachet you have with the king. Think of the access you have. To, are you willing to throw that all away when you can just pray quietly in your heart? Daniel, don't do that. I will, and Daniel says, I will not pray to another god. And I will not feign prayer to another god. I will stand and pray to Yahweh Almighty. Daniel and his friends are steadfast. In chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Nebuchadnezzar threatens them with being burned alive. And they basically say this, Listen, Neb, it doesn't matter what you do to us. Throw us into a fire, and our God's able to deliver us. But here's the thing, even if he doesn't deliver us, it doesn't change one thing. We will not bow before 
you or any false god. We just won't do it. See, what you have does, is you do not have for what we need. Your riches, your wealth, your honor, your promotion, all of your things, that's not what we need. What we need is steadfastness before God Almighty. And he will deliver us. And if not, we'll still be okay. And finally, the thing we learn about Daniel is that the end is not the end. Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the, the dust of the ground will awake. And then, look at verse 13, because the book of Daniel does not just simply end. Verse 13, But as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Yes, Daniel, like the kings of the ages, you will also, you will also die one day, just like Nebuchadnezzar came and went, just like Darius came and went, just like Belshazzar came and went, just like Cyrus came and went. So will you, Daniel. But here's what I want you to understand. When you go the way of your fathers, I want you to know this. Then, then, you will enter your rest and you will rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Yes, even Daniel will die and yes, even you and I will come to our end. But there is hope for you and by extension, hope for all the people of God. Don't you love how the book of Daniel ends? Isn't that amazing? Kingdoms come and kingdoms go, but you, Daniel, and your people will rise and live forever. That's the message of Daniel. How can we miss I don't want us to miss such a glorious picture of a glorious, wonderful God who raises the dead. So I'll conclude with this. Like Daniel, you and I, I believe, are living in exile. And exile can be a dangerous place. But we must not compromise on our morals. That doesn't mean we can't compromise. Maybe in the family, well, you'll take out the trash and I'll pay the bills or whatever. We might, comp- we might even compromise politically. All right? but we do not compromise on our morals. Sometimes when we refuse to compromise on what is true and what is not true, we may be rewarded like Daniel and his friends, but know this, sometimes we may not. Obedience to God Almighty does not always end in reward. But that's what it means to live life in exile. Second thing we should remember is don't become too attached to the powerful or power. All power and all the powerful is derived power. And it is transient. It comes and goes. If you think for a moment, oh, I want to attach myself to this person because they're going to help me get ahead. Or perhaps this political party or this political candidate, they're the ones who are going to get us ahead. Whatever. Their kingdoms will come and it will go. And it is derived power. It is derived authority. Do not trust too highly in derived power because it is just that. It is not sovereign. It is a granted or least sovereignty and it comes from God Almighty. See, only God is ultimate and only God is permanent. And finally this, God is the judge and his victory is assured. And this should give us hope to persevere because on the last day, he will raise us up and grant us eternal life. Let's stand and let's pray.